and thanks for tuning in to the Think for Yourself podcast. In this episode, Dr. Manchramani shares the audio portion of his February 25, 2021 webinar discussion with Danielle DiMartino Book. Okay, so why don't we go ahead and get started? Uh, I am thrilled today to have with me Danielle DiMartino Booth, no hyphen between DiMartino and Booth, um, and that is correct here. <laughs> so uh, I am thrilled. I've gotten a chance to get to know Danielle over the last few years, and she is uh, a really thoughtful uh, individual when it comes to macroeconomic dynamics facing the United States and the global economy. Uh, she also is uh, quite thoughtful when it comes to thinking about the Fed, having worked there for some years. Uh, and she wrote a book about how she feels about the Fed. I think that's the title, uh, Fed Up, um, which uh, which I highly recommend. Uh, before we get into the conversation with Danielle, I am going to do my traditional advertising. Uh, so next week, I have with us uh, Jim Latinsky, who is the chairman, CEO, and founder of MP Materials, which is America's largest rare earth producer. Um, and uh, he's at 2 p.m. next Thursday, and he's going to talk uh, not only about what the dynamics facing rare earth are, rare earth industry dynamics are, but also about the electrification megatrend and the role of rare earths there, how it affects uh, defense industry applications and technology developments, but also, lastly, and probably most importantly, uh, the geopolitics of rare earths and U.S.-China dynamics. So please uh, register for that. The announcement will go out shortly. Um, last week, I uh, had Emily uh, from Horizon Advisory who talked about U.S. technology standards versus Chinese technology standards and the battle thereof and sort of how that was being uh, manifested, not only in payment processing and 5G, but in other ways as well. Uh, and that replay is available now and the podcast will get posted shortly. Before that, I had uh, Commissioner Kevin Warren from the uh, Big Ten uh, talking about compensation of student athletes. Uh, athletics in a time of COVID and other dynamics. Uh, a really interesting personal story as well. We got into how Kevin got into the game of uh, professional sports and uh, how he has been an administrator in there as well. Um, uh, began before that with Gilman Louie, founder and CEO of InQtel, uh, the venture capital arm of the Central Intelligence Agency and the role of technology and surveillance. Um, we had a fabulous conversation about all sorts of dynamics, including the role of Russia within US-China tech dynamics. Uh, I thought that was a particularly interesting tidbit from that conversation. And of course, the first uh, conversation of 2021 was with Elliot Higgins. Elliot is the uh, founder and catalyst behind Bellingcat, which is the collective of citizen journalists that uh, effectively have solved using social and open media um, solutions and, and public media sources. Uh, some of the world's most challenging uh, mysteries before the authorities were able to. So he identified through Bellingcat methods uh, that Malaysia 17 was shot down by Russians, not Ukrainians. He identified that uh, Assad had used chemical weapons before the global community had determined that. Um, and he uses social media and open uh, sources to do so. Uh, it's a stunningly interesting story and uh, a true example of dot connecting. So um, with that said, uh, the last tidbit, of course, is the advertisement for my book, uh, Think for Yourself, which is still available. And I encourage you to get it. Um, Danielle, thank you for joining me. <laughs> that was uh, okay. I, I hope I can, the big 10, I mean, okay. I'm a football person. So there you go. Uh, yes. So uh, I've got a lot to live up to here. So let, 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 I'll try. There, I'm sure you'll do fabulously. Uh, so Danielle, I'm really curious before we get into macroeconomics of the day, uh, and you're thinking around some of those dynamics and the Fed and the dollar and crypto and lumber prices and inflation and deflation and gold. And the list is long of topics that we're going to get into. Tell me, how did you get into this? Like, what was, what's your personal background that drove you towards finance? So maybe a little bit of your background on a personal side. So my father taught economics and finance at the uh, at, at the MBA level, which meant that I was like, that's the last thing I'm going to do. Yep. Come hell or high water, I'm not going in that direction, which is, of course, why I landed there. Uh, it was fairly random. Uh, within a few weeks of starting the MBA program, uh, I was I landed on the Solomon Brothers trading floor, which mm -hmm. was basically I didn't know it at the time, but it was the location of Liars Poker which yep. ended up being probably the most formative book of my entire career. I didn't even know I wanted to go into finance until I saw and felt and lived and breathed a trading floor. 
Yeah. And so that was when I knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I went off to the bright lights in the big city of New York City and I worked at a big investment bank. Uh, I knew my retirement was always going to be as a writer and I'm writing, though I'm not retired. Okay. Why is that? I was, uh, I had a gift. Uh, I, um, I went to Columbia's journalism workshop for high yeah. school students and they said that I was going to be the best sports caster and the best sports writer ever okay. in my future. So okay. I always thought I was going to grow up and write. Uh, so I, I, I was bitter about not getting that journalism degree, even though I looked at college the way I think students should today. I looked at it as a return on investment and I went, I'm not getting a journalism degree from Columbia, no offense, but I did get my journalism degree from Columbia at night. So the stock market would close. I would rush over to the West side and I got my second master's in journalism at Columbia where I was on 9-11 which was an amazing experience. Uh, so when those buildings came down, I started to reassess what I wanted to do. I was extremely successful on Wall Street and I ended up retiring and moving to Texas, working at a newspaper. I was the oldest intern they'd ever had. And within a few months, I had a, a daily column on the markets and on economics and Warren Buffett called, I answered his call. I wandered off to Omaha. And one day Richard Fisher called and said, would you serve your country? And I said, yes, I will. I had no idea what I was doing because I'm not a bureaucrat. So, yep. but I was inside the Fed for nine years. I'm happy to not be inside the Fed anymore. And what I do now is an extension of what I did then. And I love, love, love my life. Yeah, it's interesting. So the journalism background, I find fascinating because I think those individuals that have that background of sort of investigation, dot connecting, et cetera, see the world differently. I always love my conversations with journalists because they are connecting disparate sources uh, to formulate a storyline, et cetera. So I think that's, uh, that's uh, probably part of the reason you're so insightful. It's, it's one of the best ways to get training to be able to identify fake news. And if you learn what the fourth estate truly is about, then you learn how to find the truth on your own. So yep. it, I, I think it's critical to the way I frame the world. Yep. So talk to us about the main storyline of Fed Up, and then we're going to get into current affairs, but uh, as sort of where we are in the world today. Why did you write the book? So in 2009, 2010, there was this massive internal debate, this existential crisis among all these monetary policymakers and really important people. We didn't see the crisis coming. Our inflation metrics didn't pick up the runaway in home prices in America. So we didn't see what was coming down the pipeline coming. So we need to reinvent inflation and how we track it so that when the stock market runs away and the bond market runs away and real estate runs away, we're able to capture that source of increases in prices. And after coming to that conclusion, they also determined that their models would break if they actually acknowledged inflation for what it truly is in a holistic sense. So they did nothing. Mm-hmm. At which point, something inside of me broke because mm-hmm. I'm a walking, talking advertisement for whatever the first generation of Ritalin was that my mother never let them give me. I mean, I, I'm seriously hyperactive. So to get me to sit down for two and a half years and write a book, that's how fed up I was that they knew that something was broken and chose to not fix it, chose to not fix it. Yep. And is it something beyond the idea of, and I don't want to get too technical because I don't want to lose people that may have a, a different background, but beyond the idea of hedonic adjusting to manipulate inflation, et cetera, I always thought that was fascinating. And, and for those that don't know, um, you know, the idea that something is more powerful, think about your computer. I can't buy a laptop today for $500. Uh, I could buy a laptop probably for $800 or $900. And next year, maybe that laptop increases in, per- in capability and computing power by 20%, let's say. And the purchase price goes up by 10%. I can't buy a laptop next year for $900. I got to spend the thousand, but it's more than 10% more capable. So that goes into the Fed models as prices falling, even though I have to spend 10% more to get anything. And that is, you know, the conspiracy theorists, you know, they're like, oh, the hedonics. And that's true. And that's actually a valid approach. It really is. Because- you know, whatever, I've, I've got Bloomberg on in every, Bloomberg TV on in every room in the house because it's, 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 like, it's nothing compared to what the family really spends money on, which is healthcare and housing. Yep. Those are systematically underreported inside of the inflation metrics. Okay. And that's where you get me going. Okay. And they're completely <laughs> absent of any kind of asset price inflation that we yep. all experience, by the way. So yep. Yep. Okay. because they're 
A, inadequate, and B, understate households' two biggest line items, housing and healthcare. Yep. They are essentially invalid and misleading. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, so we're going to come back to all that. Uh, so you wrote the book because you were fed up. <laughs> and you decided- yeah, putting it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you got it out there. Um, and that was after you left the Fed. But then- you didn't stay silent. You didn't just drift off to retirement. You didn't go write some more you know, books. You didn't sort of drift away. You stayed relevant. You got out there. You're obviously doing Quill now. Uh, why? What's the message so, now? What I did for Richard Fisher was prior to every FOMC meeting at the Eccles, the Fed is meeting today in Washington, D.C., the statement will be released at 2 p.m., uh, so before every one of those meetings, when they would go around that great big oval table, I would travel up to New York and I would visit with economists and buy side analysts and people on the sell side, great big investment firms, small ones. Yep. And I would get a feel for what was happening in the markets. And I would get a feel for where the markets were intersecting with economic data. And I would present a markets briefing before he went up to Washington, D.C. That broke with the orthodoxy of what of how the Fed operates. There's a New York markets desk and you're obligated in all the districts to take their markets intelligence as gospel. Mm. Mr. Fisher was not a PhD in economics. He was an MBA in finance, just like I was. So he chose to have his own markets desk. Well, what I learned after I left the Fed was I was addicted to following and I, I have to have, I'm plugged into the markets almost 24 hours a day. Yep. But it became my lifeblood. So that is exactly what I do today for Quill Intelligence. I will say that my co-founder, who's a millennial, initially was none too impressed that after I published Fed Up, I continue to educate people. Financial literacy is my absolute mission. If you go on my Twitter feed, there are people who say, I've learned more from you about economics and finance than I ever learned in school. So uh, to say I give it away for free is an understatement, but I think it's the right thing to do because a lot of what's wrong with this country at its core is a lack of understanding and appreciation of how finance and the, the decisions that you make today can affect what your retirement looks like tomorrow. And I'm not just talking about what you set aside for retirement. I'm talking about the debt you take on today. Sure, sure. Um, okay. It's too big a invitation to go there. <laughs> I can't resist. So let's start with the debt. Danielle, you, look, there's a laundry list of topics we're going to address here during the course of the next 45 minutes, but debt, since you took us there, let's start with that one. The United States as a nation, if you, you know, financial literacy, uh, I always used to find it fascinating that uh, some of the uh, other academics and individuals I've gotten to know say, especially those with like, you know, economics or accounting backgrounds will say, you know, the U.S. doesn't do its accounting the way you would think most people would do their accounting at a country level, right? So we have obligations that one would naturally call debt that we expense, right? Sort of you call those, some of those entitlements. What if we capitalize those? What if we actually call them the way we were? What kind of gap might exist between what's our country net worth if you had to actually do something like that? Right. So open-ended question for you, but how should I think about debt at that country level first? So Insolvent. Okay. Is this like a word game? <laughs> Truly we are. Uh, we, we are because we have the reserve currency status. Mm -hmm. There's really nothing beyond that to discuss. Look, we have, it looks like Biden's going to expend the majority of, of his political capital with a non-productive $2 trillion slug, which is not gonna get a lot of growth and job creation and long-term productivity out of fiscal spending. He could have been the next FDR and come out of the gate and said, I'm going to do the new New Deal. I'm going to rebuild America, make us competitive once again with China. And instead, he's chosen to throw a lot of money at non-productive means, with all due deference to people who truly need it. But there's not, there's not very much that's targeted in this. The reason you're, you're asking me about debt, that will bring us to $30 trillion. Mm -hmm. Long story short, $30 trillion. Right now, if we don't have any expediting of fiscal spending, we'll hit 50 trillion by 2025. Yep. And there is this notion because we have the reserve currency status, we have the dollar. Great Britain had the pound in 1921. Sure. When it started to come off 100 years ago. Uh, 
But the more we push our country towards true insolvency, the more at risk we are going to be. Start to follow the Chinese yuan. You always hear it's just a microscopic small blah blah. It's not. It's really coming up in terms of the percentage of, of, of transactions that are done in the yuan. If the yuan stays where it is, somewhere around 647, 648, the Chinese economy will be larger than that of the United States by 2028. That was shaved by two years because of the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. If the yuan appreciates, because we're watching the US go towards down this road to perdition so much more rapidly. It's not that we've got this massive debt build, it's the rapidity with which it's been growing in recent years. So it's, it's, deficit. it's the deficit, not the stock. And the stock. Oh. Deficit oh. spending was 15.1% in fiscal year 2020, but that's been expediting itself, but it's all tacking on to the end. But if the yuan is to appreciate here in the medium terms, okay, 12, 18 months to six, they will surpass the United States by 2026. That's that's soon enough for us to, to say it's relevant today, five years from now. Mm -hmm. And that is what US debt is. And that is what took down Great Britain. And that is what has taken down every reserve currency nation going back 400 years or so. Okay, but Daniel, I'm gonna push back a little bit. What's the alternative? Where do I go? If I have $100 billion, I don't, but if I did, which currency would I want it in overnight? You, you have to have it in the dollar today. Okay. That's why I'm saying five years is a long enough time to discuss because it, again, we're coming off of a 40 year decline, a secular decline in interest rates. Yep. 1981 was the last time you had that discussion. Yep. So the but debt so will- matter and it will manifest in inflation. That train is leaving the station now. Okay. It's starting to show up. So I want to know, fine, I understand what you're saying. Five years from now, am I going to want, am I going to feel comfortable to put my money in Chinese hands? Like, is I that think that, that is the direction that China is going in with their very, very quiet colonization. Yep. And they're building economic alliances, uh, whether you're talking about Africa or South America, sure, uh, or obviously the entire Asian corridor. But and if you look at direct investment out of China in 2016, it did a it, it took a right angle turn. Direct investment in the United States basically ended. And where's their fastest growth been? Europe. So when you're talking about reserve currency shifting, you have to take the politics into account. Yeah, of course, you, you have to take. But they're building alliances beyond Asia, is my point. Yep. And they're building economic alliances, and they're helping countries build out their infrastructure. The biggest destination for out for for money leaving China, the government is construction spending and energy. So they're extremely strategic in what they're doing. So we think it's impossible today. But what I'm trying to say is because they've got so much more buy-in than they've had in the last five years, and because of the direction that transactions in Yuan are taking, because the communist regime is opening to foreign investment, which is an oxymoron in and of itself, because China's allowing defaults, which they didn't do a few years ago, Mm -hmm. So they're behaving in a very Western manner right now. And their middle class is exploding while ours is basically Agnet. vanishing. Yeah, fair, fair. So do you think this is, so tell and me- And I know pro-China. I, I want for us to fix what, I, I'm very American. I want for us to fix what's going wrong. Yeah, so, but give me the road signs because obviously we don't know. I'm probably more skeptical of the Chinese uh, developing a reserve currency status perhaps than, than you are. But- we don't need to debate that. What we can talk about is what are the road signs we should watch between here and there? Is it the Belt and Road Initiative and their greater integration into Central Asia, down into the Middle East, into Africa and up to Europe? Is it volume of trade that takes place in Chinese Yuan? Is it, what is it that I should watch to see if I'm wrong in my assessment that the Chinese will be unlikely to ever develop a reserve currency? So what, made me public enemy number one inside the Fed is that I place 
great value in anecdata. And it's not just something, it's, it's not just series that can be seasonally adjusted going back 50 years. I would look at the Challenger Gray and Christmas hiring data and I would try and incorporate that into my briefings and say, but this is where hiring is going. This is the next generation of job creation. And the e economists, the PhDs internally would say, no, 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 you can't look at that. You can't. But the reason I, I say this is Greg Ipp last year of Wall Street Journal, mm -hmm. he wrote, a, he wrote a, one of his columns and he simply had a chart of telecommunication providers globally. Yep. At the time, Huawei was 32%. And what he basically said was, if Chinese communication equipment surpasses 50%, and this is why you have the phone you have, Vikram, by the way, mm -hmm. it is. That's why you have the phone you have. If, if because China's investment is so strategic towards tomorrow's technology, and if that telecommunication footprint that's 32% last year surpasses 50%, it's basically game over. They're everywhere. Yep. Okay. The, the, the global communication network that is the backbone. If you look at emerging markets, the fastest growing sector of emerging markets is telecommunications equipment. Mm -hmm. But if you dominate that arena, I know it's just anecdata, data, but if you dominate that arena, you're everywhere. Yep. Okay. All right. So we'll come back to it. We'll watch it. We're going to watch the Belt and Road. We're going to watch China's integration into the we're rest supposed of the talking about this. We're supposed to be talking about those Twitter questions. Where are we going? Oh, we're going we're to we're gonna get there too. So uh, the last thing on the China thing, uh, and it relates mm. to the US and it starts, it goes back to what we started with, which was debt. They still hold some debt, right? They still, as far as I remember, they still owned a bunch of the US debt. How does that play out? Well, so China has been strategically reducing its stockpile of U.S. treasuries for years now. Mm -hmm. So it was for a very long time uh, a larger holder than Japan. That baton has been passed back to Japan. Uh, late last year, the government, the Chinese officials released um, a statement that said, we will whittle that 1.3 down to 800 billion methodically. We're publicly announcing it right now. We won't expedite the process down to 800 billion in treasury holdings, dot, 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 unless there's a military conflict. Yep. That's in writing. So we know that they are, and we know that there's the discipline to do it, that they're weaning themselves away from. And we know that we're looking to nationalize here in the United States and build out our own industries. So it's a national goal to have fewer dollars mm -hmm. landing in China's coffers such that they have to be transmitted into a treasury holding. So yep. it's, it's a two-way transition right now, one on our part, one on their part. But they're very public in saying we're headed to 800 billion. Yep. Okay. So relating to this topic of reserve currency, debt buildups, et cetera, I'm trying to weave together all the questions we've got here, which is great that they have such an engaged group. Uh, what about crypto, does that have a role to play in these currency dynamics that you're talking about? If we do think that there's a reserve currency status battle that the Chinese are upset about our exorbitant privilege, if you will, uh, to be able to print and do what we want and dictate and the weaponization of the dollar through you know, SWIFT and some of these standards that exist and, and sort of they, they want an alternative, Russia wants an alternative, others are lining up to sort of produce an alternative. Saudi, uh, Iran, blah, blah. Yeah, well, of course, a long list. Um, so so what does that mean for crypto, number one? And then uh, we're going to go from crypto to gold, just to give you a sense as to the direction I'm going to weave. So what does cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin specifically, does it have a role to play in this sort of evolution of a reserve currency on the global stage? So this is where the conservative in me comes out. And this is where I show my age. So reserve currency status has never been uh, lost without violence. Again, we only have 400 years of history to go back on, mm -hmm. but that's never happened. And the reason I bring that up is the cryptocurrency solution entails peace. And it entails China being a willing participant to go down this route, as opposed to China having a vision of where it sees itself on the world stage in five years. Mm -hmm. So you have to have buy-in from everybody because there's also the assumption of a debt jubilee in there as well. If you're going to go the crypto route, these massive debts that are exploding are going to have to be expunged. Somehow. And there's a lot of peace in the proposition for crypto to end up gaining kind of this global presence, this global standard. 
Okay. So I just, as a historian, I can't, I can't see China buying into it. And okay. that is why China is as active as it is in piloting its own digital currency. It is doing it actively and constantly. So they can control it. And they well, control yes. it and where it goes. Yeah. So and this is where, and, and they're, they're pushing reserve currency status because of their own digital currency. It becomes a matter of national security for the United States to have its own digital currency. But if we go digital, if we go Fed coin, all of a sudden the need to transact in dollars vanishes overnight. Yeah. You can be much more fluid in what currencies you need to hold, which is why the Fed and, and Treasury officials and the US government, they're trying desperately to hold the line and not go digital. Plus Jamie Dimon might have a few things to say about the banking industry being made irrelevant overnight. Yep. Uh, but, but, but that's why we're trying to hold the line. And that's why China's pushing the envelope as much as they are to make it a new standard globally by going there as the second largest economy. Yep. Does this have implications for the possible emergence of a hard currency, a, a non, right, sort of a gold back? I hate, hesitate to raise the sort of gold backed currency, uh, sort of, but something that has a backing other than the word of the regime. Well, look, we've seen countries building up their gold uh, stores. We've seen central banks building up their gold stores in very, very, very recent years. We've seen Germany, who is now more reliant on the Chinese for its economic growth, begin to build its, its military. So if you marry gold to, the, to, to why countries are building up their gold stores and who, you know, again, where their alliances are, it all starts to kind of make sense. Yep. So my, all four of my children are forced to take Mandarin at gunpoint. Yep. <laughs> so let's hope that never happens. No, they actually all do for all four do they, take, they take, they Mandarin. take Mandarin now. Is that right? Well, I figure if you can't beat them, join them. At least they can understand well, what's being said. Well, it's funny because one of the things I did you know, I, in college, I went, you know, early nineties, the, the, the rage was to study Japanese because the Japanese were going to take over. And I, I studied, tried to do the same thing. I studied Chinese because I was the, that was the contrarian in me. I was like, Oh, there's more people there. Let me study that. <laughs> uh, so does this make you a bull on gold and precious metals? I, I've got a, I've got a couple of questions, which is stop asking her about the dynamics, ask her whether gold prices are going up or down. <laughs> well, I think gold prices right now are in a state of confusion. Uh, the street, Wall Street, wants to tell people that went into the year saying gold was where to be. Uh, the problem, though, is I'm, I'm really going to get I, I can I can feel my Twitter feed right now about to explode. Yeah. The problem is the distraction of Bitcoin and the fact that it's been adopted by institutional investors. So gold is not playing its traditional role, yeah. but I'm not counting gold out at all. I own gold and I own silver. So those are my full disclaimers and I'm not selling them anytime soon. Yep. So, because if you look and people are like, oh, it's an inflation hedge. And I'm like, no, it's not. Look back at your history and study times of inflation and deflation. If there is disruption in the financial markets that are in the 99th percentile valuations, so why would there be vulnerability there, dot, dot, dot. If there is disruption in the financial markets in any way and prices go in either direction, inflation or deflation, Gold is a safe haven and the only uncorrelated asset class when your correlations line up, which is why emerging markets are moving in concert with investment grade debt, which is moving in concert with the stock because your correlations are starting to align to line up. Gold's going to move in a different direction. So is it fair for me to think about gold and possibly we can come back to its relationship with cryptocurrencies as a non-printable currency. But in this time of debasement, right, we're going to get to unconventional monetary policy, but let's just agree we're printing away, right? And so therefore each, each dollar should be worth less. I mean, intuitively, right? There's just, each one's going to be worth less and less and less over time because there's more and more and more of them and there aren't, it isn't matching productivity, et cetera. So therefore, if we're printing, each mm -hmm. one will be worth less. So shouldn't non-printable currencies, and we can call gold, silver, platinum, crypto, Bitcoin, et cetera, as non-printable. Doesn't that make them all super desirable, regardless of whether there's a gold distraction or a Bitcoin distraction? Don't, shouldn't they all yes. prosper? The, the general philosophy, the underpinning, and bear in mind, we've had the, the printing press going in the background for, call it a generation, but we've never had the assumption that we do today. When we had the blue wave, something broke 
when it comes to how the printing press is visualized. And now it is the accepted notion inside the beltway that there is there are no consequences for printing. Now yep. that did not exist prior to Georgia and those two Senate elections, it didn't. So we've been concerned about fiat for a generation now and rightly so. When we crossed that Rubicon, when we started QE, when we made the announcement just December the 15th, 2008, we've been concerned for a long time, but we've yep. not been disregarding. We've yep. never said there's a nonchalance about it. There are no consequences, but that is what Jay and Jay have to say, Janet and Jay. Mm -hmm. And together they're a force of nature and they've changed the conversation around fiat because they have told you there are no consequences, we have the tools. And so your thinking, let me guess, is that you're not supportive of this modern monetary oh, For God's sake. <laughs> I just wanted to get the facial reaction, if nothing else. <laughs> because if inflation runs away, we can get Congress, which is so efficient, yeah. to come together overnight and raise income taxes. Yeah. I'm yeah. sorry, but that, that is the last chapter. And that is the lever that would replace interest rates and you're talking about our con. This is not some other country's Congress you're talking about. We're not going to outsource an efficient Congress. We go, oh, wait, we need to raise income taxes, but we can't do it with our Congress. We're going to go get a Congress that actually functions. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's go. Let's go to inflation uh, and talk a little bit about inflation and specifically what you think the short term outlook is. You and I have talked in, you know, offline about sort of the impact of what's recently happened in Texas uh, and sort of how that may flow into the data. I think this morning, even one of the guys at uh, at uh, at PIMCO was saying, beware of the inflation head fake. Um, you know, you've got some dynamics about, oh, it's going to come. It's going to look like it's coming, but it's not really coming, uh, et cetera. So help me understand how I should think about inflation near term and then longer term? So near term, there is going to be a tremendous amount of tension. But remember what I just said, at the very foundation of your question is how Washington views the printing press. So it's viewed as being something that is absolutely free and can continue going forward because that is the most integral part of the discussion about inflation and whether or not the political capital is there just continuously print and further, further fiscal spending. In the near term, you've got year over year inflation going to 0.1% in May. So you just have to have a little print to have a massive headline just because of the Delta. So that's why PIMCO is saying this is going to be a temporary phenomenon. PIMCO is also looking at the fact that vaccinations are going very well. If you look at Israel, they've just crossed the 50% line in terms of vaccinating their, their, their population. We're seeing the virus itself truly come under control. Yeah. So there is this anticipation of pent-up services spending. And we will see that. We will see that. But people are not going to go back and take the vacation that they didn't take. They're just going to take the vacation that they're going to take. Yeah. And they're not going to redo their deck again. Mm -hmm. They're not going to redo the bathroom one more time. Yep. So that good spending is going to dissipate after the true reopening post-vaccination. So that's going to take your price pressures off. 19 million Americans are currently collecting un unemployment insurance. That's going to take your inflation pressures off. But we have the mother of all supply chain disruptions. Input costs right now are at the highest level in 12 years. That's a real thing for anybody who makes anything. Mm -hmm. On top of that, you have sugar that's piled up in India. You have coffee that's sitting in Vietnam. You don't have enough freighters to move food, period. Mm -hmm. Freighters are being deadheaded to Shanghai. Shanghai needs empty freighters to come from the West Coast, period, end. Right now, freight and shipping costs are astronomical. They're hockey sticks. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about input costs. I'm not talking about what's inside the container. I'm sure. not talking about the steel. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about what it costs to ship the steel. Yep. So those two price inputs are generating the mother of all margin squeezes right now. And then you shut down the $1.9 trillion, ninth largest economy in the world. Texas. Texas. <laughs> and you're going to have to repair quite a bit of it with copper and steel and lumber. Mm -hmm. So you have at the margin, you have a source of continued 
supply demand. You have this massive new demand pull on top of the supply chain disruption that has not improved. The supply chain disruption got ugly after the first Trump tweet that started the trade war. Yep. And it got a little bit better and then we had COVID. Yep. And then China reopened and then they said, no, we're gonna reclose. And then there's the Lunar New Year. So the supply chain disruption keeps getting worse and worse. But the fact that it's bleeding into food inflation in other countries that can't ship their goods to the United States means that the price at the checkout at the grocery store is going to get America's attention. Yep. We've got oil prices up. The price at the pump as we start to drive more and the vaccinations take hold, that's gonna be more noticeable. So there are, there are inputs to inflation that are supposed to be transitory in nature after you get these crazy base effect prints, what Jay and Jay are telling you, Janet and Jay are telling you, we're gonna look straight through them. We're gonna let inflation run hot. The bond market is telling you bullshit, excuse my French, but yeah. that's what the bond market is saying right now. And that's why we're having so much tension with, oh my God, the tenure's at 1.4%. The world is ending as we know it. Well, you know what? It's triple what it was in August and starting points matter. Yep. No, of course. And we're going to come back to that. We're going to come back to the, the market side of things with debt markets and bond markets, equity markets. I've got some questions. On, but before we go there, I want to interject a more fun question, which is what I've Yay. done a lot of these webinars, a uh, little bit less serious, if you will, uh, Danielle. So do you have a favorite book or a book recommendation you'd give to this audience? Uh, it's been one of the highlights of this webinar series. People love the book recommendations. So uh, is there a book you'd recommend? So um, when I was asked to move to Dallas, Texas, uh, I signed a non-compete and basically sold my book of business back to the investment bank that I worked for at the time, Credit Suisse. Mm -hmm. And when I was asked to transfer to, a, to an office in Dallas, I said, equities in Dallas. I said, who does that? So Liar's Poker was by far the most influential book on my youth when I started on Wall Street. The Lords of Finance is my Bible. Hmm. My favorite book in the world is Goldfinch. Okay, good. Uh, how about a mini series or movie? And is there something that struck mm. you as particularly thought provoking or something that you really enjoy uh, that you'd recommend? So people always wonder, you know, are, are you not concerned about the mafia at the Federal Reserve coming and hunting you down? And <laughs> I always say, get busy, get busy living or get busy dying. So I think the Shawshank Redemption is an important movie for okay. people to, uh, to find their inner self, their inner core persistence. But if you're talking about I'll let you know. For the last 50 years of my life, I've been debating Godfather 1, Godfather 2. I still have not made up my mind. <laughs> okay. They're memorized. Yeah. They're the absolute best movies that have ever been made. I'm going to go with one, but that's my personal. No, but Pacino <laughs> with Robert De Niro, the combination. Oh, it's good. I get it. I look at I think all three are fine. More Oscars than any sequel in the history of mankind. Yep. No, you got a fair point. I'm not going to debate you on that. It's okay. it's awesome. <laughs> like Tahoe scenes, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Killing the brother. I mean, there's so many, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It's a tougher, it's tougher than I initially thought. I'll give you that. And when you think about, I lived in Venezuela and the parallels between being in Venezuela, you know, before Chavez came on living there and that scene in Cuba before Castro rises. So, you know, whatever. It's, okay. All right. Maybe one is good. Too. All right. Let's it come is. back. I don't know. Okay. All right. So uh, let's, let's talk markets. Um, so you took us to the direction of the bond market. Let's talk about the bond market. So yes, uh, rates have tripled as you noted, but are we gonna see a two print? Are we gonna see a two handle? Well, you know, months? if we do, I think the wheels will come off. Uh, on the day that we saw 1.4%, mm -hmm. the wheels started to come off. Mm -hmm. And Powell's in front of Congress, and he's saying, I'm going to keep the wheels on. Come what may. I promise you, I'm keeping the wheels on. Mm -hmm. And yields came off their highs. And markets bounced off their 50-day moving averages and went haywire. Mm -hmm. By the time you ended the day, all the meme stocks were like hot again. Mm -hmm. CNBC's got a whole show dedicated to why is GameStop up? And I'm like, yeah, because risk got re-released today. Because yeah. bond yields started to come down. Mm -hmm. Look, there is this gentleman by the name of Pat Toomey. He believes in term limits. I believe in term limits, 
but he put a provision into the $906 billion bill that says the credit facilities that Mnuchin took away from the Fed, the four of them, including the backstop for the corporate bond market, mm-hmm. I'm not going to let Janet just flip a switch and turn them back on. There's going to have to be a new reason. Now, the law is up for interpretation, but Pat Toomey's there until 2022. So where you're seeing the stress manifest is ticker LQD. It's the biggest investment grade exchange traded fund. Why not HYG, Danielle? Why not junk? Well, junk's only got $47 billion of refinancing in 2021. Who cares? Yep. Investment grade. Morgan Stanley says 50, 58% of investment grade bonds should be rated junk. Visions, memories of subprime. So follow that LQD, follow MOVE, the move index. The the VIX is a sideshow. The transmission mechanism into the stock market starts with credit and Jay Powell knows it. October FOMC 2012, he was a rookie. And he said he feared that quantitative easing was inflating a credit bubble Mm -hmm. across, excuse me, was inflating a duration bubble across the entire credit spectrum. His roots are in private equity. He understands exactly what's going on in the credit markets. They frighten him to death. That was the that was where the focus was of March 23, 2020. He grandfathered in any investment grade bond that was downgraded to debt. He said, I take that away. It's going to stay IG. Uh-huh. Follow LQD because there's so much refinancing this year. There's so much. $430 billion of commercial real estate has to be refinanced. Not We're not talking about some maturity wall well out in the future. This year, yep. you have to have rates stay under control. Have mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. Does that mean the equity markets have a floor? Have a support? <coughs> to the me. extent that... That to the extent that Jay Powell can keep the credit markets from coming unhinged, uh-huh. equity markets will have a floor because it is the credit market that feeds the equity. It was, it was the downgrade of general electric debt in, on Halloween of 2018 that created the bloodbath on Christmas Eve. One started the other. One triggers the other. Don't follow the VIX, which is... Oh. Stock market volatility, follow the move, which is bond market volatility. Even though the VIX has been at a very high level, so is emerging market volatility, bond volatility has been completely quiet, dead. So, yep, yep. yep. But it's come unhinged. It's, it's almost double off its September the 29th low. That's what you're seeing manifest in the stock market through the credit market. Okay. So, give me your thoughts on the equity markets and the stock markets generally. Uh, you hinted earlier by saying 99th percentile valuation, et cetera, that you might feel that there was some exuberance here. Um, I'm not going to suggest irrational, but when one looks at SPACs, uh, well, a prior webinar guest I had here was Jeremy Grantham. Um, and, and Jeremy said they should be illegal and sort of went on to say, the analogy was the South Sea bubble back in the 1600s was, we have such a great idea. It's such a brilliant idea. We can't tell you what it is. Just give us your money and we'll be good. Right. Um, and SPACs are, we have great ideas and there may be some that are actually good ideas, but are there 300 billion plus annually as seems to be the current SPAC issuance rate uh, to be out there? So thoughts on equity markets and insofar as SPACs represent anything, I'd love your thoughts on those. So always look at the construct. SPACs are designed such that the founders get to keep all their money. Everybody else is rolling the dice. It's simply the construct of the contract. So that answers your question. So it's just, it's complete speculation, complete and total speculation. And it's designed to, to harbor the initial investment and yep. safeguard it and let everybody else roll. Yep. So that to me, oh, that yeah. is a conflict of interest in its design. Yeah, of course. And this was, I think, Jeremy's point too, which was, this should be illegal at some level here. Um, But one can also make the argument, and I've heard it made, that, well, aren't you just enabling really promising companies to lower their cost of capital um, that have really promising long-term stories? And not only that, you're allowing the public at large to get exposure to some of the more promising company rather than keeping it in the exclusive domain of these venture and private equity firms that are able to fund them. 
Are we back in 1999? I, I'm just sharing with you an argument. I was on Wall Street at the time, and that was what, you know, that was what all of those road shows sounded like when it was talking about clicks and letting people in and the retail investor and opportunity and opening it up and all that. It's look, um, it's it's noble in theory. And yep. it is certainly noble in terms of the sell. Yep. But, yep. Uh, but there's a reason that venture capital exists and that companies are weeded out in that process before they get to where the sure. public puts their money in them. Yep. No, I understand. All right. So let me go to a couple other questions that have come in here. Uh, one is, do you see the Fed intervening in the longer term bond market? If so, how and when? So I, I think that, that Jay Powell knows after the 10-year the yield hit one, hitting 140, you know, basically caused the world to end. Uh, I think Jay Powell knows that he's going to have to control the long end of the market. And the question is, will the market give him credence? We have to remember, there's not a lot of paper to buy at the long end. And that's one of the reasons that Janet is so focused on issuing longer, because you got to have the paper to buy to control the beast. So, but they've been very hesitant. We forget that Lael Brainerd is the architect of yield curve control. And the reason that Wall Street has gone off in two different directions, now they talk about extended maturities, which is what you're asking me, versus yield curve control, is because yield curve control, as it was originally designed by Lael Brainerd, talks about going out maybe to the two-year. <laughs> That's not going to help what's going on in the 10-year, which controls, uh, you've got You've got purchase applications to buy a house down four in the last five weeks because the mortgage, the 30 year fixed mortgage rate popped above 3%. Are you kidding me? And yet we're hypersensitive because the average, the same MBA data shows us that the average size of the of, of, of a purchase loan last week was $418,000. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I that's do, a lot of new home. I do remember my parents having a mortgage in the teens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I mean, that was. But again, it's, it's the starting point and it's the rapidity with which yields yep. are rising and the fact that Powell does not want to have this discussion. He keeps trying to say, we're going to keep up with the QE. It's going to be $120 billion a month. We're committed, we're committed, we're committed. But he's really reluctant to go out the curve. Okay. Um, thoughts on housing markets? That's another question that I have here. Um, sounds like you're hinting at them being potentially elevated because of this, but no reason for them to come down. The, 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 the grab for real estate, uh, I think, is the United States psyche is so shocked by the coronavirus that housing is where we must be. Mm -hmm. But the minute the collective light flips on and we're like, oh, we can go back to our old lives for real? Really? Like grandma can take a cruise and survive. I mean, we can really go back to our old lives. Mm -hmm. So that's when I think that this psychological idea is going to be questioned. But until we believe, until we're Israel with 50% of the country vaccinated, or even, but look, hospitalizations are coming down quickly. But right now, your home is viewed as where you and I Yep. communicate. I'm not in a television studio in New York like I was once every three weeks. Yep. But once you start getting on those airplanes and life goes back to whatever the new normal is going to be, mm -hmm. then the mystique surrounding housing won't be what it is today. And it is the mystique alone that is propping up housing prices at all-time highs right now. And on top of that, in typical market, you've got 12, 13% out-of-state buyers. And Almost I, a quarter of the market right now is out of state. Yeah. Is out of state buyers, so they're price agnostic, but they're pricing out people who live in Boise. They've long since priced out everybody in Texas, locals. Yep. So it's a very interesting dynamic. Second home sales have gone through the roof because people in the big cities who they're not selling their penthouse in Manhattan, but it's it's very vogue to go find a someplace out in the middle of nowhere and tell your friends that you've got a new home in wherever. I'm in Wyoming. I'm in Montana. Second home buyers are also price agnostic. So, and you've got Fannie and Freddie doing automated appraisal waivers. That means that you don't have to have a, a person in the home. You can just plug the waiver into the machine and Fannie and Freddie, they've, they've 
They've cornered this market. You got a hundred billion dollar run rate on cash out refinancings back at 2007 levels. There's a massive tax cut that's rippling its way through the K-shaped economy. Um, so housing is a force of nature, but just be careful about when we go back to whatever this new normal is going to be, because there's absolutely, you can ask any housing veteran in the world and they'll tell you housing is in a time compressed bubble that was pushed by the densely populated urban exodus, mm -hmm. but hyper turbocharged by Jay Powell buying up a third of the mortgage market. Sure. Sure. So rates matter, right? I mean, of course, rates matter to housing. They the always... last five weeks, you've seen a negative signal on purchase applications. So rates do matter yep. when you're talking about, I can only afford this house because of my borrowing costs. Yep. Uh, but you also sound, it sounds like you think there's some, some pressure in terms of actual cost of building and therefore the actual, oh right? Between lumber and all its sort of inputs. Uh, you know, I'll share a little tidbit of a story here with you, Danielle. So I, I've spent a lot of time traveling through the emerging markets and I spent a lot of time studying hyperinflation. I spent a little bit of time in Zimbabwe uh, and I met with some of the, the wealthiest folks there. And one of the individuals I met with had this palace of a home and I went to him. I, he was, you know, he's my age. I said, sort of, what happened? How, how did this work? What'd you? He said, I borrowed to the hilt before the last rounds of massive hyperinflation showed up. I believe that there was gonna be, and so my seemingly multi-million dollar loan was repaid with the equivalent of dollars of, you know, $5, uh, something like that. And you know, so, okay, housing lever, if you believe in inflation risk, et cetera, uh, maybe there's a real asset component to it and, you know, levered against a real asset in a time of inflation might be okay, right? But that's a different dynamic. <laughs> um, how do you think the uh, equity markets play out? That's a question here from here forward. Uh, obviously you're telling people to focus on the bonds. That'll be your signal, but equity markets on their own are at a healthy sort of premium. You might argue to long-term valuations. Maybe you can inflation adjust or interest rate adjust valuations. A lot of people come up with the, the, the gymnastics to tell you why you're not uh, extreme. Um, some of your thoughts there. And then I've got another question here too. So um, here, here's my quick and dirty. Valuations are no timing mechanism, but if you don't pay attention to the fact that in December, 1920, the price to earnings ratio, according to Dr. Schiller was 4.8, the lowest in records dating back to 1881. The December, 2020, it was seven times that level, mm -hmm. the price to earnings ratio. So whether you're using the Buffett, whatever you're using, but the fact that the fact that March happened, that March 2020 happened, that every day we woke up to limit down, limit down, limit down, you've seen the preview to the movie. You've already seen the trailer. So you know that there's massive downside in stocks right now. You're just not seeing it until something breaks. But is that, the, is that the lesson people are taking, Danielle? Because the other lesson is, look, there are hiccups, there are thrown, people will throw fits, markets will correct a little bit, but there'll be this wall of support that shows up because we just, as a country, don't want that pain. The regulators won't have it. And therefore, buy every dip. Buy every so buy dip. Buy the dip. Buy the dip. Buy, buy, just That's what you got to do. There's, and, and isn't that the lesson people have taken? Well, it is a lesson and it's the right lesson for the last 40 years in a falling interest rate environment. And you think you that- You have to be able to generate the decline in interest rates to keep the party going. Yep. And you have to have the basis points to push rates down to keep the next, to, to, in order to fuel the next cycle of the rally that's been going on for 40 years. So what happens to the, what happens to the equity markets if rates in the US go negative? So it depends on who makes them negative, really. Okay. If the market pushes them negative, then we will have come through MMT. We will be in MMT, mm -hmm. effectively. We will, be, we will be a universal basic income nation. Mm -hmm. You have to have something of a calamity for rates to go negative. And Jay Powell, understanding markets as he does, and the banking lobby being as strong as it is, is not taking the federal funds rate into negative territory. 
He's having his own battle at that end of the yield curve right now because he's trying to make sure those rates don't go negative by the markets. Yeah. But if you're talking about the bond market itself pushing rates into negative territory, I mean, that was that was the depths of COVID. That was Great Depression levels of unemployment rates. Yep. You're talking about that go that are that are commiserate with the market setting a negative interest rate. We sure. we won't be needing to chit chat about whether it's stocks or bonds or asset allocation. And how do you feel about <laughs> you're going to be you're going to be hugging your gold then, aren't you? Because you're going to be on you're, where's your portfolio in the fetal position, and I'm hugging my gold. So it's yep. Yep. that discussion. All, all the discussion we're having right now is moot if the market forces negative interest rates. Yep, got it. Uh, question about is there anything other than the bond market that could cause the equity market to crack? Well, you haven't seen. I mean, what, what's bizarre is, and people don't realize this, is that there's no taper tantrum. And yet the market's pissing a fit. But you've got Jay Powell saying, I, I give you my word. I'm not going to raise interest rates. I'm not thinking about thinking about it. I'm not going to slow the pace of purchases. And yet we've had a taper tantrum yeah. without a single Fed official really indicating that any of this... 2023 is when they said they're going to hike interest rates. And yet we've had a taper tantrum. Yep. So without the dollar appreciating, this is an extraordinary moment that we're seeing in U.S. markets history right now. Extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Extraordinary. The transmission mechanism is pure long-term interest rates. And it's being accomplished without the dollar. So yep. if something starts to move in the currency markets, get out of the way. Yeah. Because you've got this with one force right now, just interest rates. But normally you would see an appreciating dollar, a company, what's happening right now, and you're not. So in fact, I looked at ticker UUP. It's a dollar exchange traded fund. I follow it very closely. At yesterday's close, it was identical to where it was on January the 4th. Dollar hadn't moved an inch all year long. And yet we've had an entire taper tantrum. Bizarre. So, I mean, currency is not, a, is not a market that the Fed can control. They cannot control currency. It cannot be manipulated. All right. it's, so it's it, sounds like, it sounds like besides the bond market, follow currency, follow the dollar specifically. Um, there's a really interesting question here. Do you think the Fed has a responsibility to help the U.S. government maintain and upgrade its economy for a new technology era in the midst of a raging Cold War? Isn't Powell doing his, doing his job like Mariner Eccles during World War II that massively improved the country's productivity and long-term growth trajectory and made it a superpower. What do you think? I think this question is coming from somebody who's time traveled because <laughs> at last check, we haven't spent a single stimulus dollar to any productive means. I'm the biggest advocate in the United States of America right now for massive infrastructure spending. I'm not talking about two. I'm talking about $5 trillion. Yep. Massive, massive. Let's Let's catch up to China. So, forget about, so we've got. So you're saying we've got that. We've got the capacity to oh, go yeah. to to print money, issue debt, whatever. If it's, as long as it's productively deployed, labor key, pool. We have plenty of workers that are out of work. The, the key is so it doesn't sound like you feel like we're constrained. I want to quickly summarize this because we're running out of time. Pin, you don't feel like we're constrained. You feel like it's what we're doing with the money that we sort of the debt we issue. If you deploy the debt into productive capacity, Maybe. productivity enhancing. Yeah that will later help future generations enable infrastructure, sort of enable the future to be more productive, et cetera, then that's productive and you're, you're in favor of that. Germany, Germany has had a standing program with existing employees, with existing employers. They have fiscal spending to retrain people who are still working because they know that the jobs that they have today are going to be redundant tomorrow. Sure. That is smart fiscal spending. Sure. No, no I, I can imagine that. I think my, my sense, I'm not following it as closely as you are, Dina. my sense is some of the build back better logic and making America is intended to go in that direction. Now, of course, there's inefficiencies in deployment, et cetera. So you're so, insisting on a minimum wage. Again, this is not the right time to be expending, but he could be, he could have been the next FDR. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Last question. What are you most worried about? Sounds like you have a lot of worries. <laughs> so I want to end, preferably, please give me something that's slightly positive also afterwards. Uh, so you can tell me what you're worried about and then leave us with a positive note. I'm most worried about why I make my children take Mandarin and they despise me for it. Um, mm-hmm. But there is an interest in, in NASA again. Space. You know, space. But if, if the nation embraces something that, uh, that that creates an interest in STEM education. 
where children want it, where high school graduates want to get an engineering undergraduate degree because they're like, oh man, do you see what they're doing? You have to have the culture embrace it and then we can compete. Yep. Okay. So it sounds like you're worried about China. I'll say it bluntly. And you're most excited about the prospects for technological innovation in space right and, here at home. and sort of the STEM thing. So awesome. Well, Danielle, thank you so much for your time today. I know we've run out of time. We could keep going, given the questions I have on my phone and my iPad and my email, I've got an hour and a half, we could keep going, but <laughs> this was wonderful. Thank you for your time. Thank you for joining me. And I'm, uh, I'm thrilled uh, we get a chance to talk so frequently. So I appreciate that it. That was a lot of fun. Thank you. All right. Thanks everyone for joining. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. If you find value in these discussions, we hope you'll consider supporting this series by becoming a member of the Think for Yourself community. More information can be found at www.patreon.com slash And please do subscribe to the podcast series on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or Spotify. 